Support for Conversations of the Heart, Prescriptions for Healing, is made possible by the Richard M. Schultz Family Foundation and donors to the End in Mind Project. The producers of this podcast and their partners are careful to ensure that all stories protect patient confidentiality. The views of providers heard in these conversations are their own and not their employer. You're listening to Conversations of the Heart, Prescriptions for Healing. This is a glimpse behind the scenes of medicine, focusing on the very human stories behind every patient and provider interaction. I'm Kathy Worzer. When someone survives a situation when dying seemed likely, it's said they cheated death. In the story you're about to hear, death walked away empty-handed, thanks to the heroic efforts of a medical team, the perseverance of a patient, and perhaps a little divine intervention. Let's begin. He was very close to death. When he woke up and I was able to formally meet him and, and talk to him, you know, he just seemed very humble. He was very... Um, very grateful and just seemed like a very spiritual person. And now that I've talked to him and uh, my conversations with him now, I'm just amazed. And it really, the takeaway from that for me is it's hard for me to think about all of the patients that I took care of and what the ones that didn't make it, what they may or may not have done in the world. It is a scene that has become a heartbreakingly familiar one. It was played out in hospitals countless times over the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Nurses and physicians, respiratory therapists, and other professionals swathed in protective gear, doggedly working to save very sick patients who were struggling to breathe, their bodies attacked by a new kind of coronavirus. At the time of this episode, almost 7 million people have died of COVID worldwide. For this story, we'll go back to November of 2020. The news was grim and getting even more so as the COVID-19 pandemic had the globe firmly in its grip. One sign that the United States is in a coronavirus surge, hospitalizations around the country have nearly doubled since late September. Some hospitals are already talking about rationing care. We'll sounding alarms tonight. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert, says the country is now facing a surge on top of a surge, the virus is now spreading so fast, 4 million Americans were infected this month alone. Now that's one th I know that with the cooperation of the American people, with our incredible doctors and nurses and first responders, with the extraordinary partnership of federal and state and local health officials, uh, and with God's help, we will get through this. And we will get through this together. Mr. Vice President. So many Americans were getting sick. Facilities were converted into emergency field hospitals. So many people were dying in November of 2020. About 50 people every single hour. Refrigerated trailers were turned into morgues. In the midst of this COVID chaos, Walter Bird of Minneapolis, Minnesota, found himself not feeling especially well one day. He was doing the laundry. And I couldn't really breathe. I couldn't bring the basket 
of clothes up the stairs. And when I got up the stairs, I couldn't even catch my breath. Walter, a vibrant and popular film producer, was young, in his mid-40s, and in pretty good shape. He would kickbox for exercise and walk every day. So when he struggled to breathe after walking those stairs, he thought something was wrong. A call to 911 led to the emergency room of M Health Fairview University of Minnesota Medical Center in Minneapolis. I don't even remember what happened when I got there from that point on. Family members were saying that I was calling them and talking to them. People said that I was posting stuff on Facebook, and I don't remember any of that. His longtime physician is Dr. Heather thompson Beum. I think I got a notification in the electronic health record that he had went to the ER and rapidly deteriorated to uh, from a respiratory standpoint. And I remember feeling kind of surprised because he was, what, 44, 45 at the time? Not that old. His only medical problem was high blood pressure. That was his main one, anyway. That was what I was managing over the, the, the many years that I've been seeing. It was his blood pressure, essentially. And so he didn't have a lot of risk factors. But that didn't matter as the virus took hold. Walter quickly developed pneumonia and had to be put on life support. He was already in the medical ICU. He was intubated. He was on sedation medication. That's Don Lynn, a registered nurse who took care of Walter alongside the ICU team. He was very, very close to death. To make the situation even more difficult, Walter's mother was also sick, just down the hall. And she was trying to come and see me, and they wouldn't let her come and see me. With Walter on a ventilator, nurse Don Lynn and her team were trying a number of things to help pull him through. He was on a very high setting, high ventilator settings and prone, which means he was laying on his stomach. And he was on multiple medications to keep his blood pressure up, the vasopressors. Um, yes, I think everything short of ECMO is what I remember. Yes, yes. He was also on continuous renal replacement, mm-hmm. uh, continuous dialysis, which is a little more gentle than like your, um, you know, hemodialysis that you get a couple, two or three times a week. He was very close to death. Because he was sedated, Walter says he doesn't remember much of this difficult time, except some of the dreams. I was having nightmares and hallucination and, and having some of the, some horrible dreams. So, and some of them were related to like being on a plane where it was hijacked and it it just was so much different elements to what was going on and just flashbacks and it, it just was chaotic. But even while lost in the fog of sedation, Walter felt something else. When I was under in the vent, I remember a sense of calmness and from, and I know this to be a fact that not like, um, not in a sense of like me and you having a conversation, but it was like subliminally uh, someone saying, you're gonna get through this, you're gonna get through this, but they weren't talking to me. It was something that I felt that uh, uh, energy, a positive uh, force, re- 
yes, God, I believe so. And I believe uh, that we do have angels that uh, are surfacing around us to protect us. And I believe that that had a lot to do with it because I felt it. Don, I was talking to Walter about any memories from being on the ventilator. And he says he felt when he was coming to the surface at times that there there was a presence that was telling him he was going to be okay. Does that sound familiar to what your experience has been with other COVID patients or patients who've been on sedation for a while? Um, that's kind of what I hope my patients, I apologize, I might be getting a little emotional here. Um, we really don't know what our patients hear or know when they're under sedation right? Um, until they're awake and they're able to tell us. And a lot of times, you know, people don't have a recollection of their ICU experience for weeks or months at a time. When they're at home, they start to have these recall and these dreams and stuff, and they don't really quite know what is real and what isn't. Some may be really, you know, happy or exciting dreams. Some are very scary. Um, And that's all part of the PTSD that people experience as being, you know, in the ICU for such an extended period of time. Because we don't know, I always err on the side, obviously, that people do know. And so every single time I go into Walter's room or any any of my patients' room, I do hold their hand and I get close to their ear and I tell them, you know, my name is Dawn and I'm your nurse. You're safe. Your family knows that you're here. You're at the hospital and we're doing everything we can to get you well so you can go home. And it's my hope that even if they don't quite understand everything that's going on, that they hear a calm and soothing voice that somebody is holding their hand and that they know that somebody is, you know, taking care of their pet or, you know, that they're, that their people know that they're, that they're where they are and that, you know, things are medically necessary, but, but we're trying to help them get back home. And I'm, I'm so happy to hear that that was some of Walter's experience. And I don't know if that was me specifically or my voice, but collectively, I think as nurses, we kind of hope that that's what we can impart on our patients when they're in such a critical place. Don Len met Walter Bird when he was fighting for his life. It was at a time when so many other patients were too, as the world was trying to better understand this easily spread virus that was killing so many. It was a battle that would test even the most resilient of healthcare providers. You know, we run into the fire, sort of, so to speak, as as healthcare providers. We are there to take care of people who are sick. And so initially, I think at first we were more in myself, you know, but also my team, we were more in, you know, go mode. It was, you know, time to do it. This is what we do. This is what our job is. This is our purpose. And this is what we're going to do. But as the weeks wore on and the months wore on, it became a lot more difficult every day to walk back into the hospital because you knew what, what it was going to be. It was a very, very isolating time, I know, for the entire world. But, um, you know, from, from my standpoint, it was very isolating driving into work. Everyone obviously was distanced, but we also had PPE on. So even though we were next to our coworkers, there really was that loss of ability, like communication, because you yeah. can't see the face behind the mask. And then we had the papper and the hood and the gowns. And 
you know, it was really difficult for us to um, communicate or, or have that connection with each other, but also with our patients. I wanted so much just to take my gloves off and just hold my patient's hand. And I couldn't. I knew that when our patients arrived that, you know, nobody could come into the hospital to see them. Their family members couldn't, you know. And so many family members early on um, really believed that when their their person went to the hospital, that that was a death sentence. They weren't coming back. And I had a lot of conversations with family members and, um, you know, just kind of taking them step by step so that they don't to reassure them and stuff that, you know, we're going to do everything that we can. It was very taxing. I would go outside on my lunch break just so that I could take off my mask, my PPE, and just have the sun on my face and breathe some fresh air. And just, you know, sometimes I'd actually lay down in the grass just to kind of center myself Mm -hmm. a little bit and just have the quiet. M Health Fairview psychologist, Dr. William Robner. There was certainly talk about the importance of mental health among staff uh, throughout. You know, how do we support our department, the Department of Medicine created a program to try to figure out what do we do to, to help people in the department? This is the, the physicians and other providers and the staff during this because it was unprecedented. None of us had ever lived through a time like this and we were trying to figure it out. Let's go back to what was happening to Walter Byrd, who was sedated with a ventilator breathing for him and fighting COVID. Generally speaking, the longer someone is critically ill, the more likely they are to have complications and the less likely they are to recover. But that's not true for everyone, including Walter Byrd. He spent 59 days on a ventilator. 59 days. Dr. Heather Thompson-Bium is Walter's doctor. If you had like a COPD patient who got bacterial pneumonia and was on the vent that long, you would almost think you would probably, you'd be having goals of care discussion or the patient would have to be uh, transitioned to a trach, for example. They would require long-term ventilatory support. Um, but with with COVID, it was just so unpredictable. Um, and as far as who got better and who didn't. Well, I could agree with Dr. Thompson-Bium that it's, you know, usually, so the course of course of care is after typically pre-COVID, if somebody is intubated for like uh, two weeks is kind of the threshold, then we start having conversations about goals of care um, and vent weaning, which is, uh, you know, once we place it, we're talking about getting a trach. Once a trach is placed, then we can better do some vent weaning. And then the patient may actually discharge from the hospital and go to uh, a rehabilitation facility for additional respiratory therapy and vent weaning. But apparently, Walter Bird had other ideas the day staff tried to wean him off the ventilator. He woke up really quickly and he had a lot of questions. And, you know, his speaking voice was very clear. And he had, I remember he had a deep resonating voice. I was like, wow, there's your voice. There you are. I always say, you know, hi, it's nice to meet you. I'm Dawn. I've been taking care of you. And it's so good to hear you. And I just remember that. And those moments for me, particularly with Walter, but all of my patients, that's just, that's my 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 special time. That's why I do what I do. Mm-hmm. And um, it was, yeah, I was surprised that he was extubated. What was difficult was when I woke up, and just 
seeing a reflection of myself, it was like I was a shell of myself. I had full hair, you know, I had a full mustache. Uh, I just was, I lost 80 something pounds and I just was a shell of myself. Just looked in the mirror and started crying and you know, it was, it was definitely uh, hurtful to see myself like that. What Walter didn't realize at the time was the impact his survival made on the staff, a rare win in a time of so much loss. I do remember there were people that just kind of kept walking as the day went on. There were people that kind of just peeked their head in the room and then they then they leave and they peek their head in again. And Walter looked over and he asked me, he said, why? Why is everybody so interested? Why is everyone coming in? And I said, Walter, you don't understand. You beat COVID. You beat COVID. And I had tears in my eyes. He started crying and he said, I didn't realize that it meant that much, that I meant that much to people. And I said, absolutely, we've all been pulling for you. And it was, um, yeah, it was emotional for all of us. I kind of felt like, in a way, God was saying, I did what I needed to do. Now it's time for you to do what you need to do. And I just remember, like with physical therapy, they got me up right away, not too long after that. And I was saying to myself, uh, you know, I don't really feel like getting up, but I got up. And that's one thing that I never did. I never like turned physical therapy away, not once, not ever. And when I first got up and walk, I mean, I woke, I was walking to a, a standing ovation, you know, and it was, uh, it was amazing. I think for me, one of the most emotional moments was the first time I saw him in the outpatient clinic in person after he was discharged from home or to home from the, the rehab. And I read through his chart and I'd had, you know, poured through all this information. And in my mind's eye, I still remembered him as this kind of big athletic strapping guy. I mean, he would go to the gym and he would lift weights and he was, you know, a tall, big man. And when I walked into the room, he had lost so much weight and he had a walker in front of him. And he just burst into tears. And so did I, because it was so emotional. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, yes, you, you, you made it. Look what you've been through. But I can tell that this has been a huge toll mentally and physically. So a lot of that was just talking, you know, and uh, listening and uh, giving him encouragement. And um, he had a lot of determination to be working hard with physical therapy and, and get his strength back because that was the main you know, the main factor in his recovery was just this extreme debilitation um, to the point of needing a walker at his young age, right? But the next time I saw him, he was ambulating with a cane and I was like, yeah, look at you. And then the next time I saw him, he was had no assistive device to, to ambulate and we were high-fiving. But the road to full recovery has not been easy. Yes, it was it was difficult and it was grueling, but uh, you know, I was like, I'm gonna do this. And I, I did it. I just looked at myself and I said, 
I'm gonna take just one day at a time with this and, and process it in a way where, hey, um, this is a test, you know, and you have to fulfill and complete that test, you know, and if I don't complete, if I fail at that test, you know, that's okay, long as it's completed. So that's kind of how the mindset that I went into uh, getting back to where I was at and uh, is the physical therapy component. And, and I went to a couple of rehab facilities and the, the, the last one that I went to, I ended up having blood clots in my legs. And that sent me back to the hospital and I was in there for, I say about nine days or so. I ended up coming home and I collapsed and I had a pulmonary embolism. I ended up going back into the hospital. So it was a, it was a roller coaster ride up and down to get through all of that. But I have to say, I'm, uh, to be where I'm at from a physical, a spiritual, a mental standpoint, and for uh, even my, my future uh, endeavors, I think it works out. And if I could get through that, then I can get through anything. And Walter has gone through a lot. He's had help recovering both physically and emotionally from Drs. Bium and Robner. You know, most of us don't really think about what's going to happen at the end of our lives. But when you go through something like this, it forces you to, to question that and then to wonder, now what? Now that I'm here, what I'm going to do? And I think he's he's channeling a lot of his energy into doing the things that he considers important to do. But there's a fragility to it. I think that there was already some fragility to the sense, given that he had, you know, his father recently died just before he got sick and other members in his family had COVID as well. So, you know, you feel blessed and you feel curious and you feel uncertain about what's, what's going to happen. You realize that there aren't any guarantees. Um, and you do feel some, sometimes a little guilty that, hey, I got through this and the person in the... ICU room next to me didn't. Yep, survivor uh, guilt. Survivor's guilt. And, yep. and you see what went right and you see what went wrong in, in, in healthcare and how much control you have and how much lack of control you have. I think for some people that, that makes them take their health very seriously and I'm going to do the best that I can and other people you know, develop more frustration with their health. I'm not quite the person I had been. I don't have all of the same kinds of options I used to have. I'm a little weaker now or things are a little harder now. Um, and so there, there are a lot of things to adapt to uh, following this kind of thing. But, you know, he has a story to tell about if I can come through this, you can come through what you're going through. Um, so he's got a lot of credibility among people who are really in those difficult positions. And um, and he knows that and he's using that. He wants to use it and share that. Nurse Don Lynn. It's hard for me to think about all of the patients that I took care of and what the ones that didn't make it, what they may or may not have done in the world. Yeah. Um, 
Walter's like, as you all know, a force to be reckoned with. And he had a lot of life's work that he was in the process of doing when, when he was struck with COVID and the things that he's been able to overcome and not accomplish and be successful with, with his, you know, his production company and his, his books and his animation. Um, it just gives me joy that um, I had a small part in helping the world experience, you know, his life's work. Mm-hmm. And it, you think of that on a, on a multiple scale level and it's, it's overwhelming. Walter is sharing his hard-won lessons in a unique way. Now that Walter's lung function is back to normal and he's feeling good, he's working with many of the same people who helped save his life. Walter is a patient transport worker at M Health Fairview University of Minnesota Medical Center in Minneapolis. And the reason why, because I have access to the patients, I have access to the staff, and even some of the staff that had taken care of me, and when they see me, they're always excited. And one of the nurses recently said, when we see Walter, that makes us happy. And to me, that's important, and I'm doing my job to help patients that might be going through it, and some of them be down and out, and I give them words of encouragement, and they really change, their whole perspective really changes. You know, so I just, my words is, hey, just hang in there. It's not over yet. Just just hang in there. It might feel difficult, but, you know, you could get through this. Just It just takes one day at a time. One day at a time, that's it. I just want to be there to give that words of encouragement, that support, and and let people know that it's not over. It's not over. Life is not over. You might be down today, but keep on fighting the fight because tomorrow is another day. I think I think he's just sort of a walking reminder about how important the work is that we do. And um, we all need some wins. And it's hard not to look at Walter and think we're all winners in, in his health and his continuing on. Um, he, he really is the kind of person who draws people in and, you know, then has a cheering squad. And I'm just so fortunate that I've met him. Wow. Walter Bird's COVID battle and his successful outcome is quite a story. It reflects hard work and commitment by Walter's medical team and his deep faith, courage, and resilience. Thank you to doctors Heather Thompson-Bume and William Robner, RN Don Lynn, and the entire M Health Fairview University of Minnesota Medical Center team in Minneapolis for the work they do and for participating in this podcast. And of course, a special thanks to Walter Bird for telling his story. Thanks to you for listening to Conversations of the Heart, Prescriptions for Healing. We wouldn't be here without the support of the Richard M. Schultz Family Foundation and donors to the End in Mind Project. You have a million podcast choices out there. I know you do. And you've chosen to spend some time with us. Thank you for that. If you liked this, share the episode or tell a friend about us. I hope you'll also download our next episode when we meet an ICU doc who leaves room for miracles in the midst of the medicine she practices. Until then, I'm Kathy Warzer. Be well.